In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel tells of his journey to Christianity. As a former journalist, each chapter is set up by a question, and then he interviews various Christian scholars concerning the questions that he had as a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Such as, can the biographies of Jesus be trusted? Is there any credible evidence for Jesus outside of his biographies, meaning the four Gospels? Was Jesus' death a sham and his resurrection a hoax? And on and on the questions go concerning Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But in chapter 13 of his book, he comes to the point where he's asking about the resurrection and if there were any valid eyewitnesses of the resurrection account. If anybody had actually seen Jesus and it could be uh, proven that they had seen Jesus following his supposed resurrection. And within chapter 13, he interviews a man named Gary Habermas. And what's interesting about his interview with Habermas is that it brings things down to such a practical level that it's impossible to miss. You would think that something uh, like talking about valid eyewitnesses would be very technical, but it got very practical for Habermas, and that the conversation turns to this practical nature of the resurrection and how it is practically relevant and helpful for us in the here and now, even though this is something that happened 2,000 years ago. But why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ even matter right now? We walk around with smiles on our faces on Easter, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? We kind of have this call back and forth to each other. We're, we're happy. We think about His resurrection and it brings us joy and we worship Him and we honor Him every Easter. But then for the 51 other Sundays of the year... We do the same thing. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But how is the resurrection practical beyond Easter and beyond the 51 other Sundays of the year? Why should the resurrection matter to you tomorrow and the next day and the next day? For Habermas in the interview, the resurrection meant everything to him in the pain that he had experienced with the death of his wife. And let me read for you actually uh, part of this interview. This is what Strobel says. He says, Before I left Habermas's office, however, I had one more question. Frankly, I hesitated to ask it because it was a bit too predictable and I thought I'd get an answer that was a little too pat. The question concerned the importance of the resurrection. I figured if I asked Habermas about that, he'd give the standard reply about it being at the center of Christian doctrine, the axis around which the Christian faith turned. And I was right. He did give a stock answer like that. But what surprised me was that this, what surprised me was that this wasn't all that he said. This nuts and bolts scholar, this burly and straight shooter, shooting debater, this combat-ready defender of the faith, allowed me to peer into his soul as he gave an answer that grew out of the deepest valley of despair that he had ever walked through. Habermas rubbed his graying beard. The quick-fire cadence and debater's edge to his voice were gone. No more quoting of scholars, no more citing of scripture, no more building a case. I had asked about the importance of the resurrection, and Habermas decided to take a risk by hearkening back to 1995 when his wife, Debbie, slowly died of stomach cancer. Caught off guard by the tenderness of the moment, all I could do was listen. I sat on our porch, he began, looking off to the side at nothing in particular. He sighed deeply, then went on. My wife was upstairs dying, except for a few weeks. She was home through it all. It was an awful time. This was the worst thing that could possibly happen. He turned and looked straight at me. But do you know what was amazing? My students would call me, not just one of them, but several of them, and say, 
At a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. As I would sit there, I'd picture Job who went through all that terrible stuff and asked questions of God. But then God turned the tables and asked him a few questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in a bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written seven books on that topic. Of course he was raised from the dead, but I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd, I, I think he'd keep coming back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. It was a horribly emotional time for me, but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for 30 AD. It's good for 1995. It's good for 1998 and good beyond that. Habermas locked his eyes with mine. That's not a sermon, he said quietly. I believe that with all of my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie was raised. And I will someday be raised too. Then I'll see them both. The truth is that the resurrection of Jesus completely reorients our thinking. It completely changes every aspect of every day. The fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead gives me a hope when my spouse is dying. It gives me a hope when I'm going through a severe illness. There is a hope that can be found. But the truth is that apart from Jesus, there is no hope in the death of a spouse. There can be no confidence of being with them once again. Apart from Jesus, nothing is certain. But because he has risen, and because we rest everything on this bedrock fact, we can have a living hope. Will you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, and we're going to see this living hope this morning together. This is what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So, so do you see in verse 3 how He immediately comes right out of the gate? He comes out with this massive praise to God, right? There's an exclamation point at the end there. He is giving praise and blessing to the name of God. This is something that Peter is specifically and particularly excited about. He's writing about something that had changed his life, something that's thrilling to him. I mean, when you see somebody that is excited about something, right? Like, that's contagious, isn't it? Whatever it is they're excited, they just won the lottery and you're just excited, well, whatever, for winning the lottery. But whatever it is that they're excited about, they caught a huge fish or they got a huge buck or whatever the case is, their excitement rubs off on you. It is exciting to you. But why is Peter so excited? Why is he ramped up? That's because of what follows. There are a couple foundational realities within this passage that Peter, the author of these words, has to mention. And remember, keeping in mind that Peter is an eyewitness to the resurrection. 
He had seen Jesus following the resurrection, and here he is writing these words. And first off, as he says, that it's the mercy of God. That it's God's mercy that underlies this entire thing. So, blessed be God, He is merciful. This is reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul says, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2. Where he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we followed after Satan. We followed after the passions of our flesh before we were saved. But then God who being rich in mercy. In other words, the rest of the passage within 1 Peter, namely our salvation, is impossible without the mercy of God. But because he has extended his mercy, we are now able to be born again. For those who believe in Him, we are not given what we ultimately deserve. And if you want to see what you deserve, look no further than Good Friday. If you want to see what all of us deserve because of our sin, don't look beyond Good Friday. Because that is what we, endure, that is what we deserved. What Jesus Christ endured on the cross is what each and every one of us deserved. But instead, the most beautiful thing happened on the cross and that our guilt and sin was transferred to Jesus. And He bore it perfectly. He bore the pain that we deserved. He bore the wrath of God poured upon Him that we deserved. We have received a wonderful mercy. And as the result of this mercy, in not giving us what we deserve, do you notice the miracle He has brought about in verse 3? That He has caused us to be born again. So often you hear of the birth of a baby being referred to as the miracle of life. But here... Paul speaks of the miracle of spiritual life. Those of you who are Christians and you believe, do you not view your conversion as a miracle? That God has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you over to the kingdom of His beloved Son? Is that not a miracle that that happened? Something that we could have never hoped or dreamed to happen actually ended up happening? That this miracle happened for those who trust in Jesus? That we've been born again because of His mercy? But notice again who it is that has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again, right? So if you're considering or debating first or secondary causes in regard to who or what has caused your salvation, the answer is the merciful God. It could not be any more clear. He has caused us to be born again. Nobody comes to God without being born again, and nobody can be born again unless God causes it to happen. So you are not the active party when you are physically born, are you? So you are not the active party when you are spiritually born. In the former, it was your mother. In the latter, it's the work of your God. But this is why Peter is blessing God the Father of Christ so emphatically here. Because without the mercy of God, Peter knows that we would have no opportunity to be born again to the living hope. He knows that he is a sinful man, some of which is recorded in the Bible. We see some of the ugly side of Peter. We see some of his warts, don't we? You see him grab that sword and he hacks off the, sword, the, the ear of the guy when they take Jesus, right? You see in the book of Galatians where he is actually being prejudiced against the Gentiles and he's removing himself from the Gentiles and sticking with the clique of his Jews, Jewish friends and Paul calls him out on that. We see some of the ugly warts of Peter within the Bible. And so he is a sinful man. But he knows that without the tender mercies of God that he would not be born again, that he would still be dead in his sins. And so from this vantage point, from these couple of 
bedrock foundational points that it's God's mercy that has caused our salvation, Peter goes on to show us the results of God's mercies, the results of being born again. And I want to summarize it this way. Through the resurrection, we have everything that we need for the present and the future. And we're going to see this in three specific ways. Through the resurrection, we have a living hope. Through the resurrection, we have a secure inheritance. And through the resurrection, we have a coming salvation. But first, we have a living hope. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so because of God's mercy, we have been born again. But we have been born again to something. A living hope. Take note of how these two things connect. You have been born again, so you have spiritual life. And so now you have a living hope. These things are connected. Those who are spiritually alive, opposed to spiritually dead, because they have been made alive by God's mercy, they have a living hope. When a person comes to Jesus, they're made alive. Without Christ, they remain in spiritual death. But when you are spiritually born, you are not born as one into hopeless oblivion. When somebody is made spiritually alive, they are given a great hope. They're given a living hope, a hope that cannot die. A hope, and how do we, how, how do we uh, know that our hope cannot die? Like, what do we rest this on? So we can say that we have a hope. But what is the fact that underlies it? We have a living hope because we have a living Christ. Because our hope is in Jesus. And the Bible says that He is never going to die again. He is alive. He is in glory even now at the right hand of the Father. Is this not real to you? That the Christian has a living hope because the Christian has a living Savior. All of this great truth comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus, Peter says. Through the resurrection, we have a living hope. Most often, when we use the word hope, we hope something is going to happen, but we're not that sure, right? We hope we're going to marry this person, or we hope that we're going to have children someday. I hope that Tom Brady plays quarterback for the Patriots until he's 80. I can say that I hope that that's going to happen, but in my heart, I know that won't happen, will it? He'll probably only make it till about 70. (laughs) But I hope that he plays till 80. But when you're reading the New Testament, like we have in 1 Peter with the word hope, it does not mean, wow, I hope so. I hope that things work out for me. I hope that I get that promotion. If you write in your Bible or you take notes, take note that the word hope means confident expectation. One translation could even be ever-living expectation. Ever-living expectation. That is what hope is in the Bible. The Christian has an ever-living expectation because of our resurrected, ever-living Christ. But we have this living hope that is then connected to another word in verse 4, and that is the word inheritance. Look at verse 3 into verse 4 again. So he says, According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So through this resurrection, we have a living hope. But second, we have a secure inheritance. Now, inheritances are are nice, aren't they? 
That our parents work hard or our grandparents work hard. They save up for us and they then give it to us after they pass, which is actually a biblical principle. The Bible does say that parents and grandparents are to lay up for their children. They're to reserve stuff for their children and pass it on as an inheritance. But there's more to it than that, isn't it? It's so much more than, oh, this is great. I got some money. Oh, I'm so thankful. Right? We're more so thankful that our family thought about us, aren't we? That, that it... it the feeling is nicer knowing that they cared enough to do that for us than a few dollars, right? We're thankful that it was important to them to care for us. You even think of maybe a trinket or something small that maybe your mom or grandmother or great-grandmother had and it's been passed down to you and it's one of your most prized possessions that if your house were caught on fire, you would take that trinket and run out of the house, wouldn't you? But the problem with a, world, a worldly inheritance is that it is perishable. Money doesn't last forever. If we took inheritance money and we were able to buy a car, well, the car, certainly in Maine, would rust out within a few years. If you have a really big inheritance and if you bought a house, your house won't last forever, will it? All earthly inheritances eventually dissipate, don't they? But the inheritance that the Christian receives, when they are born again, born into the family of God as one of the children of God, he then sets up an inheritance for his children that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our eternal life with Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is imperishable in that it cannot be affected by death. The Christian inheritance cannot be affected by death. The inheritance cannot die itself. It can never run out. And the inheritance does not perish when you perish. Instead, when you perish physically, you receive the inheritance. It's not defiled in that it's morally perfect. There is nothing wrong with it, and it's unfading, and that it's brilliant and pristine in its character. But did you notice that where our inheritance is held? It's not held on a safe on earth. It's not held in a local bank. It's kept in heaven for you, Christian. As one author said, our inheritance is out of our own hands, so we cannot lose it. Out of the reach of men, so they cannot corrupt it. And away from the grasp of Satan, so he cannot destroy it. And this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Because of his mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Because we are born again, we have a living hope through the resurrection. We have a secure inheritance through his resurrection. And third, we have a coming salvation. Look with me at verse 5. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first word of that verse, the word who, who is it referring to? Who by God's power are being guarded? Who is the who? The, the who is you, Christian. The, the who goes back to the last verse, uh, verse 4, the last word of that verse, kept in heaven for you. So the who in verse 5 is you. Notice how important that is. And, even, and notice even more reason for blessing God. Who by God's power, Christians being by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Christian, this is a, a present reality right Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, this is not a present reality for you. But those who have been born again to this living hope, you are right now being guarded by God. By His power. Through the faith He has given to you. Now, how does that flesh out? What does that look like? I'm in the stage with my oldest daughter, Nora, where she thinks that I'm strong. And when she gets scared... She runs 
to me. She throws her arms up and she trusts that whatever she is afraid of, that I'm able to conquer. That she, by my power, is guarded from danger. And that is a great thing to be a dad and your daughter runs up to you and and feels like you could just conquer the world if you had to. But how much more, Christian, to know that you are right now in this room being guarded by God's power. Ask the Spirit even now to help this to sink in. How would your life look different if I would remember and you would remember that God's power is guarding you right now? How about during temptations? That your heart is leading you astray. And so often we need God's power to protect us from our own hearts, don't we? Satan is tempting you. God is protecting you. Or during despair, depression, God's power protects us. And as we read his word, it produces strong faith in us. And he guards us and protects us through faith. Think back to Ephesians where he talks about the shield of faith. Is not the shield itself a protector? God himself protecting us by his power through faith. So at this present moment, Christian, this second God is guarding you with His power. He's standing and He's watching over your soul. And we need our great God, our great shepherd to do this for us, don't we? We need Him to be standing over the flock and protecting the flock as we await the return of our Lord, as we await the return of our God. We need this protection. But when this coming salvation comes, no more need for protection. So, verse 5, the coming salvation with Jesus coming at the last day, no more protection is going to be needed. And do you know why? Because all of the enemies of Christ are going to be firmly placed under His feet. That all of the enemies of Jesus are going to be completely done away with and, and handled. Satan and his angels are going to be in hell forever. Anything that is against God will be placed under the feet of Jesus and there will be no more need for protection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. Peter mentions it as the last time. Paul refers to it as the end. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You want to know when Jesus is going to come back? I know when Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be when all of his enemies are under his feet firmly. So what we can recognize and what should be obvious is that Satan does still prowl around like a roaring lion. Sin does remain within us and we fight with it. Sin is evident in the world all around us with myriads of injustices and issues and problems. But while we are being guarded by God's power, Jesus is ruling and reigning now in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of the Father, putting all enemies under his feet. Ultimately, he will destroy death of all kinds for all of eternity. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing that sovereign grace. There is going to come a day where we will be completely free from sinning. There will be no more death. All tears will be wiped away from our eyes, and we will forever be with the Lord. 
This passage relays for us so many wonderful truths and at its core, a hope, an inheritance, and a coming salvation that comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says, like I had mentioned earlier, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. This is part of why this is such a big deal for us as Christians. This is why the grave is, this is why if the grave is still shut and if Jesus is still in it, then none of what we're doing this morning or any other Sunday morning or through the week in celebrating his resurrection, that none of it matters if there actually is a grave somewhere over in Palestine and Jesus is laying in it. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then we have not received the mercy of God. And if we have not received the mercy of God, then we have no hope. The title of this sermon is A Living Hope. The living hope that every Christian has through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that what you have seen within these verses is that the Christian has not only a present ever-living hope, but a future ever-living hope. After all, does not Paul again say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if our hope is only in this life, we we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ only gives us a present hope, we're to be pitied. But in Christ, we have so much more than a present hope. Through his resurrection, we have a living hope. We have a secure inheritance as God's children, and we are being guarded until the day of salvation. However, if you are here this morning and you have not been born again, would you take a moment to consider if you have genuine hope in this life and beyond? Will you consider this morning that if the resurrection did happen and you can acknowledge that much, that has to mean something for you in the here and the now. It has to be practical to you. If it is not practical to you, then it's really not real to you, is it? Because Jesus was raised from the dead means something. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 10, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for his great mercy in causing us to be born again to a living hope. Let's pray.